Please open your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings chapter 18. I've already read this passage of Scripture earlier. Let us now bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray you will strengthen us with your word, strengthen us with the life and times of Hezekiah and how they even look forward to the time of Christ and should be rightly applied to us in our day and age. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I've been preaching on the life in this, in this series of sermons on the life of Hezekiah. And the good question to start off was, is, who is he? Well, he is a righteous king in the nation of Judah, and he lived about 700 years before the time of Christ. This is a time period whenever the northern kingdom is called Israel is going to be destroyed by the Assyrians. And then the Assyrians, as I read to you in chapter 18, are going to seek to surround and siege the city of Jerusalem. We're in the bad news section. It's in the next chapter you get to the good news where God delivers them. But we're going to take it slow and get to the bad news first today. And last Sunday, last time I preached, I preached on siege warfare. I talked about how the Assyrians uh, would lay siege warfare and destroy the cities. And how even in times of warfare, the curses of the covenant would be applied to Israel of eating the flesh of their own children because starvation would be so bad. But the good news is that Jesus turned that curse into a blessing. Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood and you'll have eternal life. So even then, with siege warfare, something like that, you can see how the gospel turns it upside down, inside out, reverses the covenant, reverses the curses of the covenant, and turns it into blessings. Now today, as you notice, this is a lengthy chapter, a long narrative, a lot of details to work through. But what I want to do today is summarize it in really four little sections or four points. What I'm going to talk about today, first of all, is the covenant and the context. And second, well, third and fourthly, I'll talk about cheek turning and counterfeiting. Let's look first at the covenant and the context. What do I mean by covenant is this. Let me introduce it by saying this. When you talk about covenant, you're talking about relationships. The blessings of a covenant relationship with a godly person. That's what I want to emphasize in this first part of this chapter. Did you remember when I read it how descriptive it is about the king of Judah at this time in history? It describes his godliness and his character, his leadership. There's actually 12 verbs that highlight the righteous acts of Hezekiah in verses 3 through 8. Why 12? Why does it mention 10 or 15? Why 12? The 12 verbs that are mentioning, mentioned in that section, it helps to highlight the covenant relationship between Hezekiah, the king, and the people, the kingdom, the nation of Judah. Now, you may ask this question. How can 12 be a reference to Judah, which has actually two tribes? whenever the ten tribes of Israel have just been wiped off the face of the earth? The answer is this, that God at this time in history, He is reducing His covenant people down to this little tribe of Judah. What's remained of His covenant people are here. It's a remnant in the tribe of Judah. So the twelve 
tribes of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, is spiritually doing this. It is being bottlenecked. It is being distilled down to this little city of Jerusalem, this little tribe here in Judah. What the author is doing here in this chapter, he's making a covenantal relationship or a covenantal connection between the people and the king, or the kingdom and the king. Why is that? Why is it so important to get this connection, this covenant connection between them, the, two, the relationships of these people, the king and the kingdom? The answer is, is because Hezekiah's righteousness is what will save the city and the kingdom. Since he is righteous, since he is honoring God, God will save the people. This is a prototype of Christ. You think about it. Christ is the king. The church is the kingdom. Why does God save the kingdom? Why does God save you? Because you have a greater Hezekiah. You have a greater king who stands there before the throne of God. And so when you interpret this passage of Scripture and see this, you have to interpret it in light of this is a foreshadow, a prototype of the coming of Christ. Christ honored the law of God, was perfect in everything. We're going to see later that Hezekiah actually sinned later in his life. He was a sinful man like us, but he was faithful. That's why it's not, called, it's not referring to his sinlessness, but his faithfulness. In fact, whenever you look at these 12 verbs and you structure them, there is a suggestion I would make to you that you can structure the 12 righteous acts of Hezekiah according to the first five commandments in the Scripture. The first commandment is, do not have any other gods before me. Well, the first thing he says here is that he, was, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. In the sight of the Lord, he, was, he had allegiance to the Lord. The second commandment is, worship the Lord your God rightly. Don't bow down to graven images and, and, um, and worship them. You can't worship God through pictures and statues and carvings and pray to those things. That's the second commandment. Well, what does Hezekiah do? The next list is he removed the high places, broke down the statues, cut down the wooden things, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent. What's that bronze serpent? Well, several hundred years earlier, the nation of Israel getting swamped by snakes. Snakes came and devoured them or they're being judged by God. And they said, Moses, please save us. Moses lifted up a bronze serpent and they looked at that bronze serpent and were healed instantly from the snake bite. Well, what happened, what Israel did, they started worshiping that bronze serpent all the way, all the way to the days of Hezekiah. Hezekiah acknowledged that idolatry broke it to pieces and destroyed it. Also, Hezekiah honored the third commandment. The third commandment, really, when you say, uh, do not take the Lord's name in vain, what it means is carry the Lord's name rightly. Do not take it upon yourself and blaspheme it. Honor God's name in your life because God's name is upon you. Well, it says right here, the next thing that Hezekiah did was, in the Lord God, he trusted so that after him there was no, no, no one like him of all the kings of Judah, nor any who came before him. He honored the third commandment in his life. Also, you think about the, Lord, the fourth commandment is honor the Lord's day and keep it holy. This is an ind indication that this is the fourth section here where it says he cleaved 
to the Lord. The same word in verse four, 6 is that he, it's the same word used for Adam, Adam and Eve in the garden. A man shall leave his wife and leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. He's cleaving to the Lord, he's resting in the Lord. He did not depart from him, he kept his commandments. The fifth commandment refers to governing rulers or parents. Anybody who's an authority figure in your life is a type of parent. Whether it be the president, whether it be a pastor or a parent, any boss has authority in your life, well, he rightly dealt with the king of Assyria. He, did, he rebelled against that wicked parent, so to speak. He did not serve the king of Assyria, and he subdued the Philistines. It's referring to what he's doing with all the people around him, the false authorities that are around him. So my suggestion to you is that when it gives the 12 righteous acts of King Hezekiah, you can also align this with the first five commandments in, in the Ten Commandments. So that's the, the covenant here that the people have with the king. And because the king is righteous, honoring the Lord, the people are protected. And we can see how that's a prototype of Christ and his people. That's how God works on a macro scale, macro, big level. But let me also remind you this. This is how God works in a pattern of reality in your life. When it comes to people over you or you being over people, the pattern of reality is this. We live in a world of hierarchies. There's positions of authority, leaders all around us in schools, families, businesses, law enforcement, churches, and even in government. There's positions of authority. And it's a blessing to have a godly person in authority. It's a curse to have a wicked, evil person in authority. Let me give you two names to remember. The one name is Hezekiah. Another name is Zedekiah. We all want to have a Hezekiah over us. You want to have a Hezekiah for a parent, a Hezekiah for a boss, a Hezekiah for a headmaster, a Hezekiah who is godly. Because what happens is, is that trickles down. When you have a godly leader, there's benefits that descend from that parent, from that boss, from that teacher, down under those they represent, those that they are in charge of. It's great to be under a Hezekiah. But who's Zedekiah? Zedekiah was the last king who came in Judah. He was so bad, he was so evil, that God sent the Babylonians to him. And the scripture says in 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 7, they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, then they put out his eyes and bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. So the last thing he would see was the death of his own children. And that was a judgment that came upon not only Zedekiah, but also to the people under Zedekiah during that time. So when you think about covenant or covenant relationship or covenant responsibility, that's a covenant's a biblical word. A, better, a basic word is relationship. Who are you in charge of? Who are you responsible of? Who are you accountable to God for? Well, if you're in a type of, if you're a type of Hezekiah, there is a, there are benefits that trickle down to those under you. And so that whenever you have a type of a king of Assyria come and knocking on your door and you have the fear of God in your heart, there is shelter, there is shade for those under the rule of a Hezekiah. But when you're under the tyranny of a Zedekiah, then you suffer. Anyway, 
you can go back and forth with this, but this encourages you to, to have that godly character in whatever covenant relationship you may find you're in, especially if you're in a position of authority or responsibility in that relationship. So first of all, we see covenant in verses 3 through 8. Let's move along. What's the context? We see the context actually in verses 9 through 12. And let me summarize the context for you. I won't read it to you again. But in verses 9 through 12, the context is this. You're the last one. You're the last survivor. That's the context. Meaning this. The context in verses 9 through 12 recounts the history of Israel being wiped out. You've got to imagine the emotional impact of this. This whole nation that's bigger than you, ten tribes absorbed in the, in the northern kingdom, is gone forever, gone for good, and you're the last little kingdom surviving. You're the last little king facing the Assyrian king. Let me pause right here and mention something historical. The Assyrians were extremely brutal. I just listened to a man give lectures on this this past week about the Assyrians. And he said that if you thought the Romans were bad, the Assyrians were worse. They would skin people alive, throw their, their skins up and torture bodies and things like this. So disgusting, so grotesque. It was horrific warfare in the ancient world. Zedekiah, uh, excuse me, Hezekiah. Hezekiah knew that he's about to lose his skin, his head, his city, all the women raped, everybody destroyed here in the city of Jerusalem. The secular scholar that I was listening to whenever he was giving a lecture on this, he mentioned something interesting. Of course, he's secular, he's not a Christian, but it's interesting here for his viewpoint. And he said that if the Assyrians had won the battle of Jerusalem, had, had destroyed Jerusalem at this time, he said it's most certain that Judaism would have never existed again and Christianity would have never come to pass. That's how he looked at it as a secular non-Christian, about how important it was for Hezekiah to win this battle against the Assyrians because the Assyrians were going to completely annihilate it and, and just completely throw it away. But you need to understand it from a theological point of view. And that is, if the Assyrians had destroyed Jerusalem in this battle and sieged it and totally destroyed it, there would have been no Messiah. There would have been no seed of the woman to come to rescue humanity because Hezekiah is a descendant of the woman in Genesis chapter 3. He's a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So God intervenes in the next chapter, we'll see, to save this city, to save this king, to keep up the lineage of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, because Satan is going to do all he can to stop the coming of Christ. And if it means bringing in the Assyrians, which Satan's going to be using that, he is going to try to use it to kill the seed, the promised seed of the woman. But God's going to intervene, as we're going to see, so that the lineage of Christ will continue through the Old Testament all the way till the birth of Christ. It gives you hope and realize that even in this context of being the last survivor, God makes a way out. God intervenes. God does not let, this, let Satan have the upper hand, the last say, nor does he stop 
the promises of the gospel to coming to pass in history. So that's the context. Now, let me move on to my next point, and that's called the cheek turning. I call it the cheek turning here because there's a passage here where it talks about how <clears throat> in the 14th year of Hezekiah, there's a new king that comes in, a new Assyrian king. His name is Sennacherib. He was notorious with his evil and his destructive methods. But Sennacherib comes up and Hezekiah says, I've done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I'll pay. He pays even, he shows that I'll give you whatever you want for peace. He gives gold. He gives silver. This is how they treated each other in the ancient world. If you just pay me, I'll, I'll leave you alone. In other words, I call this cheek turning. It's, it's a, an act of where someone strikes your pride and you stomach it. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Well, that's what Hezekiah is really doing in this initial stage here. He's turning the other cheek toward, toward Sennacherib, seeing if this will placate everything, cause peace between he and Assyria. And it seems to be that there's nothing wrong with what he's doing at this point in sense of seeking peace, turning the other cheek. But as you well know, if you always turn the other cheek against evil, does it always stop evil? Not always. Sometimes evil gets emboldened. When you turn the other cheek, sometimes it says, now we sense weakness. Now we can continue to oppress and dominate and destroy. And that's what happens. That's what starts to happen with the Assyrians. That's why right after turning the other cheek, we come to my last point, and that is counterfeits. The counterfeit section begins in verse 17 all the way to the end of the chapter. And let me give you an ex uh, a, a scene here. Hezekiah has three messengers. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, has three messengers. These three messengers will come and talk to one another. Hezekiah's three messengers are on the wall. And there's one messenger who's speaking on behalf of the king of Assyria. And it's fascinating to hear how this messenger from the king of Assyria speaks. He speaks in such a counterfeit language, meaning he, you'll notice what I'm talking about. He's speaking like the devil. He's speaking like the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And the, he has two speeches, really. There's one speech he gives to Hezekiah in verses 19 through 24. And the pronoun you is in the singular. Because he's not talking to all the nations. He's talking to Hezekiah first. And he says, tell Hezekiah this. What confidence is this in which you trust, Hezekiah? You speak of all this. You trust in your allies with Egypt. You trust in the Lord. And he's trying to negotiate first with Hezekiah. He's trying to remove Hezekiah's trust from the Lord. That's what he's trying to do. And he even says in his first speech, he says, have I not come up here? Have I, have I now come up here without the Lord? He argues this and says, the Lord has said to me, go against this land and destroy it. So that summarizes the message to Hezekiah. My question to you is, is when did the Lord tell him to go and destroy this whole civilization? Is it true? Is it false? Well, as you well know, the devil often speaks in half-truths. It's kind of a half-truth. Half-truth. Because in the book of Isaiah, listen to this. 
Isaiah was a contemporary prophet. In Isaiah chapter 10, it says that God would use Hezekiah to destroy, quote, Samaria and her idols. And he says this, shall I not also go to Jerusalem? God saying this and her idols in verse 12. God says, therefore, it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all this work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. It's kind of like the king of Assyria knew what Isaiah predicted. Isaiah did say that God was going to bring Assyria into, into Jerusalem and destroy it, Mount Zion. He picks up on that. He quotes that, applies it to himself. But he forgets the fact that he's going to destroy the haughty king of Assyria as well. But why did God not destroy Jerusalem? They had a righteous king. Hezekiah already destroyed the idolatry in Jerusalem. So God did not need to use the Assyrian king to come in there and bring him down. It shows you how there's a half-truth here that the Assyrian messenger uses trying to persuade Hezekiah don't trust in the Lord. He's speaking just like the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And that's his first message to Hezekiah. The three messengers from Hezekiah hear this and they're scared to death, but they don't want the people to be scared. And they say, hey, speak to us in Aramaic. And they basically don't want the Hebrews to hear this threat. And the field commander raises his voice even more and says, you're all going to eat your own waste and drink your own filth. We're going to surround you and just totally destroy you. The field commander then changes his, tone, his direction of his speech, not to Hezekiah, but to the people. And to the people... He tries to break their trust in Hezekiah. And this is interesting. When he speaks to Hezekiah, he says, don't trust in the Lord. When he speaks to the people, he says, don't trust your king. And he continues to say, don't let Hezekiah deceive you. Don't let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. Don't listen to him. And then he gives you this, a counterfeit exodus. Did you pick up on that language that I read to you earlier? Where the king of Assyria makes all these promises He says, if you come out to me, I'll give you your own vine, your own fig tree, your own cistern, your own land somewhere else. And uh, new, new grain, new wine, new bread. All these promises that they had in the promised land. The Assyrian king is speaking like the serpent here, speaking counterfeit Exodus language. And actually, when you add it all together, there's seven things that he promises them. And at the end, he, he promises them life. And he, ta- he reminds them, all those gods up north, they didn't deliver any of them. Your stupid God named Yahweh, that's what he's saying. He's not going to deliver you. Come to me. How do you respond to somebody like that? Well, here's the best response to a serpent. Don't answer him. Look at verse 36. The people held their peace and did not answer him a word because the king's commandment was... Do not answer him. What does that remind you of? What if the woman had remembered the words, do not answer him? 
in the garden, she got trapped into a conversation with that serpent. She and Adam, okay? Adam was right there. Guilty is more than her. Hezekiah did not want his people in conversation with a counterfeit serpent. Hezekiah did not want them to be swayed from trusting him. And Hezekiah did not want himself to be swayed from trusting in the Lord. This reminds me of Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4. It says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Sometimes when you get roped into a conversation with a serpent, you become like him. Serpents come in many forms and fashions. There was a man in Proverbs chapter 7, whenever the immoral woman embraced him and he didn't walk away from her and he fell prey to her. There's different forms and fashions of how serpents come, but they all come with counterfeits. They come with half-truths. Half and they all come with one intention, really. All serpents come with one intention, to change, to change you from a Hezekiah to a Zedekiah. That's what serpents want to do. That's what false covenant relationships want to bring into your life. Because if Satan can bring you and transform you into a Zedekiah, then he knows that all those under you will suffer as well. Remember the hierarchy of covenant relationships that we all have with various people. And whenever Satan gets to you, a serpent gets to you, then it gets to others under you. And this is how Satan's trying to work. He's trying to get to the king first. If he can get to the king, then he get to the city. The good news for us is our king is resurrected on high. Satan is cast down from that starry firmament. And, and Christ is higher than the devil. And we're saved by the king, Christ Jesus. And Satan ultimately cannot get to us ultimately. Because we're in the hand of Christ. We're his bride we're saved by the righteous king, the righteous ultimate Hezekiah. And we have his saving grace all around us. Next week, we'll look at how God saved the city and the people. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your word, your righteous king, and the wisdom your scripture gives us. We pray, Father, that you will strengthen your people to see the blessings that you give not only to your people, but to all those under their care and responsibility. We pray, Lord, that you'll raise up even more Hezekiahs in our day that will not be swayed by the threats of culture surrounding them and sieging them. We pray for all our children and grandchildren, Lord, as they're surrounded by all the temptations of this pagan culture, that you'll protect your people, strengthen them in your grace and love and compassion, and strengthen them, Lord, in the sovereignty of King Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.